So we're working through Genesis, which literally means beginnings, uh, trying to understand why things are the way that they are. And we've seen that God created a good world that's been spoiled by human sin. But God is determined to make the creation project work. And throughout Genesis, we see God giving humanity chance after chance to turn back to him. Uh, Plan A, if you like, was Adam and Eve. But they decided that they could uh, gain wisdom and knowledge independently of God. Uh, However, they didn't become wise and knowledgeable. They just became fools in rebellion against God. And they ended up naked and ashamed uh, in the garden before uh, being cast out of that garden. Plan B was Noah and his family. And Noah looked like he had real potential. But when he left the ark, he planted a vineyard, kind of like a garden. He got blind drunk and sprawled out naked in his tent. He was discovered by his son, Ham. Something shameful happened. Uh, We're not entirely uh, sure what. But at the very least, his son saw his father naked, which would have been a big taboo in that culture, and then invited his brothers uh, to come and see him too. And so we see uh, the cycle of sin and rebellion starting over again. Adam ended up naked and ashamed uh, in the garden. And Noah, who was like the new Adam, ended up naked and ashamed in the vineyard. We see history repeating itself. And next week, we're going to look at plan C. But what we see is this. doesn't matter how many chances God gives humanity Sin is always present, and sin always spoils everything. So after the story of Noah, uh, Genesis moves on to explain how the earth was repopulated by Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. And in one sense, it looks like things are going quite well. The Lord told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and that seems to be what they are doing. But then there's a twist A bombshell is dropped because we're told how it is that they came to be separated into these different nations spreading out over the whole earth. And that's where we find ourselves today, the Tower of Babel. So we see what became of Noah's first descendants, verses 1 and 2 tell us this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And straight away, this rings alarm bells, because in the Old Testament, Shinar is associated with false gods. So this is not a good place to settle. And also, we need to remember that God has told them to spread out and fill the earth. But they're not doing that. They're clustering, they're gathering together, they're settling down in this one place. And today, we're going to focus on what they did, on God's response And we're going to see that actually we have a tendency to do the same thing. And hopefully we'll be able to see the futility of that. So this group of people who settled in Shinar, what did they do? What was God's response? And how is it that we do the same thing? Firstly, what did they do? Well, they decided that they were going to take measures to ensure that they didn't have to do what God told them to do. Verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Well, God had effectively told them to scatter over the whole earth, but they don't want to do that. And so they set themselves up 
in opposition to God. You see, God's plan seems a bit risky, a bit uncomfortable. It doesn't seem very easy, so they reject it. And that is a problem that we have as human beings. So often we think we know better than God. God says, fill the earth. They say, too risky, too much hassle. Uh, Let's just stay here where we can be nice and secure. And worst of all, they want to attain for themselves what only God can give them. And then they want to take the credit for it. They think they're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. They think they can reach heaven with a bit of hard work and ingenuity. And oh, what a name they will make for themselves. Everyone, everybody's going to be so impressed with their achievements. As N.T. Wright puts it, ancient Babel, which thought to climb up to heaven by its own energy, is shown up as a futile parody of the real thing. A human attempt to get by sheer greed what God promised to give by sheer grace. But this grand project that is going to make a name for them is utterly pathetic. In verse 3, we see that they didn't even have the proper building materials. Uh, They had to use bricks instead of stone and bitumen instead of mortar. They get 10 out of 10 for innovation, but this tower probably isn't going to be quite as impressive as they hoped. So how does God respond to all this? Well, verse 5 tells us that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And I love the irony of this. Here they are building a tower that's going to reach to the heavens and God can't even see it from heaven. You've got to come down to look at it. Of course, uh, we know that God sees everything. He's om- uh, omnipresent. But the implication is there. Romans 3.23 tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God. Well, the Tower of Babel hints at just how far short we fall. Next, we see that God nips the situation in the bud. Verses 6 to 8 say this. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. So even though their initial attempts were a bit pathetic and they are never going to reach heaven by their own efforts, the fact remains that they are made in God's image. And this means that they have enormous potential. And God recognizes that as one united people, they are using that potential to rebel against him. And so God confuses their language and scatters them. And the scattering of the nations is like a blessing in disguise. It's the last thing these people want, but it's exactly what they need. Because together, their efforts to oppose God will become more and more concerted, and that can only have disastrous consequences for them. The Bible is quite explicit in its rejection of there being one huge, powerful nation, a monolithic superstate, no countries, just one big world power. The Bible and this narrative uh, in particular alerts us to the fact that this would not be a good thing. It would in fact be the vehicle for ever greater rebellion against God. And that is why God restrains and hinders the unifying of evil forces. Don't hear me wrong. It's good for nations to be friends. It's good for nations to cooperate. We are called to love our neighbour on an international scale. 
But one big superstate would assert itself against God and seek to undermine his purposes for the world. In Europe, there are those who are pushing for a European superstate. I'm not uh, saying whether that's a good or a bad thing, uh, but it's been suggested that the building that houses the seat of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, it's been suggested that that building has been intentionally modelled on Peter Bruegel's famous painting, The Tower of Babel. Now, I'm not going to read too much into that. I don't think we should pay too much attention to conspiracy theories. However, we do need to be aware that there is, and there has been for quite some time, a very strong uh, secular agenda in the world of politics. But that shouldn't come as a surprise to us, because Genesis uh, makes it clear that we are living in a world that is in rebellion against God. So we've seen that Noah's descendants didn't want to obey God. They wanted to build a city to avoid being dispersed, to avoid doing the very thing that God had told them to do. They wanted to build a tower to make a name for themselves. And worst of all, they wanted to receive the praise and the glory themselves instead of giving those things to God. But all this raises a question for us. What are we trying to build and why? Well, I can't help thinking that in our culture, we are trying to reach heaven uh, by our own effort. Uh, We can see it right here in Springfield. And when I say our culture is trying to reach heaven, uh, what I mean is that it's aiming for a utopian society in which we all have everything we could possibly want, but without having to worry about anything as banal and outmoded as God. Perhaps like Noah's descendants, we think we can push God to one side and reach heaven with a bit of hard work and ingenuity. I recently attended a community event where the vision for Springfield was laid out, and the person who was laying out that vision was a really likable character. He was intelligent and articulate and passionate, and I was struck by the fact that he seemed to be motivated out of a genuine desire to give people a better life. But I don't think it's unfair to say that his presentation was essentially a secular sermon. Dream big, put in the effort, and you can achieve anything. That was the message. And it was highlighted that Springfield has a university and a a, a hospital and a rail link. Uh, Apparently there are very few cities or new cities uh, in the world that have put those three things in place right from the outset. But I couldn't help thinking, so what? A, A university, a hospital, a train... These are not a magic recipe for life in all its fullness. If Springfield is the best that human endeavor can offer, I think we can all see that it falls a long way short from God's kingdom. In the same way that the Tower of Babel was never going to reach the heavens. The problems of this world cannot be solved by education, improved health care or infrastructure. I'm not saying we shouldn't put those things in place that uh, they're, they're important. But ultimately, they are not the solution. Because the problems of this world are spiritual in nature. Human beings are facing the consequences of being in rebellion against God. Springfield senior police sergeant recently said that the vast majority of their call outs are for domestic violence. Springfield might be a very nice place to live 
But living in a nice place does not change the human heart. Only God can do that. So the Tower of Babel was all about what could be achieved independently of God. And humanity is still doing the same thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but the nations seem to be competing for who can build the highest tower. The Tokyo Sky Tree, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, it won't be long before someone builds an even taller tower. But the Tower of Babel is a warning to us. Babel is the Hebrew word for the place known in Greek as Babylon. It's a real place. It's a historic place. It's the place to which the Jews were taken in exile in the 6th century BC. At its height, it was a phenomenally impressive city, the largest in the world, and perhaps the first to reach a population in excess of 200,000. Where is this great city, you might ask? What happened to it? Well, it's located in modern-day Iraq, and it's been reduced to a few piles of rubble. And for us, looking back from our vantage point in history, it's a demonstration of the futility of trying to work independently of God, the futility of ignoring Jesus and trying to do things our own way. Because anything that we build without Jesus is destined for the scrap heap. By contrast, and jumping from the first book of the Bible to the last, Revelation 11.15 says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Humankind's endeavours will perish. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. Noah's descendants sought refuge and security in this great city that they had a mind to build. They thought there could be no limit to their achievement, to their progress. They thought they could reach the heavens. And the Western world is very much in that mindset. People are seeking security in the secular materialism of our culture. But it's an illusion, an attempt to gain by force what God promises to give to all those who know and love his son, Jesus Christ. It's not bad to have aspirations. It's not wrong to want to achieve things. We absolutely should dream big. But seriously, what do we think we're going to achieve without Jesus at the center of our lives? Jesus' kingdom will last forever. We are all called to play a part in building that kingdom, every single one of us. So many of us have big plans, aspirations, goals in life, a tower that we're trying to build. But if our plans are out of sync with God's plans, then we're setting our sights way too low. We're setting our sights on the perishable when we should be setting our sights on the eternal, the imperishable. Let me give you a very simple example. There are plenty of people who aspire to be rich and famous, to make a name for themselves. But to what end? There's no eternal impact to that. We can't take our riches with us when we die. In contrast, I know a man uh, who aspired to earn a lot of money so he could give it away. And that's what he did. He's now a well-known investment banker, and he's given large sums of money to support the church's mission, although he wouldn't tell you that himself. himself. But that's just one aspect of life. And what we're talking about here is our whole lives. What kind of life are we building? Are we willing to dedicate our lives to God's plan and purpose? 
or, are, or will we remain fixated on our own futile plans? As John Lennox said, are we prepared to trust God for the foundation of life and meaning and significance? Where are our priorities today? Are we building a tower or God's kingdom? And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that we all have to quit our jobs and become professional Christians and you know, paranoid about how much we may or may not be doing to build God's kingdom. Am I, am I doing enough? You know, what am I doing? It's not like that. But equally, we need to understand that our faith is not a hobby. It's not a hobby. A little diversion that we turn to when we want to break from building our tower. We need to allow Jesus to permeate every area of our lives. The Tower of Babel is the epitome of human beings trying to live their lives independently of God. And we live in a culture that, by and large, is still trying to do the same thing. And even as Christians, we get so busy with life that we think we haven't got time for God. And so we try and muddle through without him. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Pentecost, when the Jews who were visiting Jerusalem heard the disciples praising God in their own languages, filled with the Holy Spirit. The linguistic divide was removed, like a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And this is a pointer to the new creation that will be established when Jesus returns, in which all nations will join in one voice, worshipping God rather than rebelling against him. But we are called to be that nation, that people now, worshipping God and living according to his purposes. Let the world build its tower. It won't last. Let us build Jesus' kingdom because we know that it will last forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and you love your creation. We thank you to, for the length that you've gone to to rescue creation from sin and death and rebellion against you. And we pray, as we prayed at the beginning of this service, that we would not be trying to make a name for ourselves, that we would not be trying to build a tower to achieve things independently of you, and at times in opposition to you. We pray, Father, that we bring our whole lives in line with your will, in line with your purpose and your plan. We pray that you will stir up our hearts and give us such a sense of excitement about what you are doing in this world, what you are doing right here in Springfield, in and through this church and beyond. Father, help us to turn our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.